Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1348 entitled The Animals on Those Airwaves. Our podcast title is Podsima. <laughs> I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And here we are on Zero G, about to go into Zero G, more or less, mm-hmm. when we discuss the film Proxima. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to go a little onto the anthropomorphic side. Yes, down the dusty road, Australian outback country road, and we're going to discuss the novel The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay. All right, well, we'll start with animals. So over to you, Megan. All right, well, the book I wanted to talk about today is called The Animals in That Country, and it is written by Laura Jean McKay. Now, this book came out last year, and it has a couple of ribbons to its name, so it's been very well received. That's not the always the criteria here on Zero G. We like to cover a wide range of books, but this one has been tipped the hat by a couple of people in the know. It was the winner of the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction and also won the Victorian Prize for Literature this year. And it was also shortlisted for the Stella Prize, which is a great prize that celebrates women writers and longlisted for the 2021 Miles Franklin Literary Award. And like I said before, awards aren't everything, but I thought I would just call out that a lot of people have liked this book. First of all, straight up, it might not be for you right now. And that the reason for that is it's a pandemic novel or there is a pandemic of sorts in it. <laughs> there is a flu with interesting symptoms, which we'll get to a little bit later, but I totally get if that is not the headspace <laughs> that you're in right now and that is not what you want to be reading. So I'm just going to call that out now but I will say it has an interesting, fresh take on it. Yeah, so Rob and I, we've discussed in the past how we're interested in a bit more of your positive, lighthearted content. So I understand if that's the same for you too. But if you are interested in reading something that's a little grittier, a little more interesting in terms of a take on the pandemic, then I would recommend this book, The Animals in That Country. I personally was quite glad that I read it. There were some elements that weren't for me personally, but overall I thought it was very strong and had some interesting ideas. And most of all, it was quite an engaging and pacey read. So there's a bit to jog the thoughts in there, but it doesn't spend too much time navel gazing. It's There's a bit of momentum going. So I thought that it was actually a very easy read for me, which was great because I wasn't really looking for something that was going to get me bogged down. <laughs> if you know what I mean. So this is why I wanted to cover it on the show because I think it might interest some of you. Also, it's an Australian author and love supporting and spotlighting some more local talent and more local writing and ideas. And especially because the book
book is also set in Australia as well. I would also note that it's not to be confused with Canadian <laughs> author Margaret Atwood's collection from 1968 of poems called The Animals in That Country. Yes, I would imagine there's a bit of an homage going on there, but some possible <laughs> confusion could ensue. So that's a good call out, Rob. We are talking about a more recent novel of the same name. Now, I think to get us a little bit in the mood, we might play a track. So let's play a bit of Tammy Wynette. I've picked Stand By Your Man, a classic, and our protagonist calls out that she listens to a bit of Tammy Wynette in her time. So I thought it would be a fun track to play. Zero G is fun, as you were. Triple R. Tammy Wynette with Stand By Your Man. And we played that track because I'm talking about the book called The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay. Our protagonist played that song driving along, so I thought I would play that for us as we dive into the plot and themes of this more recent novel that came out last year. So what's the story of the animals in that country. So we follow Jean. She's a funny one. She's a little bit hopeless. She's a bit rough around the edges. She drinks a lot. She smokes a lot. She boinks a lot. For lack of a better term, it is middle of the day. So let's not get too (laughs) explicit. So she's not your ordinary grandma. She lives up north and she works at an outback animal sanctuary. And this is a job that she loves. And she loves being around the animals and she loves talking to the people in the park. And it really is a true joy in her life, as is her weekly sleepovers with her granddaughter, Kimberly. She's quite young. I'm not sure exactly what age, but she walks and talks on her own. Let's say that. Um, <laughs> but she, I'm not very good with kids' ages. She's got enough agency to be cutting things out and pasting them into scrapbooks. So they have a really lovely grandmother-granddaughter bond. Jean really does try her best to cut down the drinking, cut down the smoking when she's around Kimberly, and try to be a good grandma to her. Now, some of the other other characters, I think we can say in this book that uh, Jean does feel very close to, are the animals. And this is especially the dingoes in this case that live at the park that she works at. So she's a tour guide there. And so she will explain a bit about the animals and talk to the tourists and drive a little kind of train buggy around through all the different exhibits and talk a bit about, you know, who's in there, what they're doing and so on. But she really aspires to be a ranger in the park. She really wants that responsibility and she wants to be able to take care of the animals in that way. And that's something that she's aspiring to, even though she sometimes holds herself back a little with some of her hard living ways. Jean has a particular bond with a dingo named Sue. And now Sue is a key character in the book. But while Jean does have her flaws and she's not exactly necessarily happy in her life, she is content and she does have a routine. Now, (laughs) wouldn't be a novel if something catastrophic and strange didn't happen and that it does. So there is a flu-like pandemic whipping through the country, spreading quickly. Some of the symptoms involve eyes going bright pink and being able to understand and communicate with animals. And now this isn't a spoiler. This is the big logline of the book. But yes, our key symptom of this flu-like pandemic, the zoo flu, is that you can communicate (laughs) with animals. And it's mammals at first, but then symptoms can increase to include communicating with birds, reptiles, 
and even insects to varying degrees. That's very interesting. We've been doing some reviews of different novels and television shows and Mm -hmm. movies where they've taken away one sense from us, like, Mm. like a quiet place. So. Mm. Or Perfect Sense, which is a nice link to Proxima that we'll talk about later. But agree, we get a bit of extra here. Rather Mm. than removing a sense, it's giving us an overload. A comment that was made, someone who's also read this novel said, there's some overlap too with, uh, there's the episode of Buffy where she can read minds and she's so overwhelmed by it that, you know, she just can't stand all the noise. And so there are some parallels there because obviously if you think about being able to communicate with animals around you and then on a more granular level, things like insects or birds, that's a lot going on. There's a lot out there and there's that's a lot of chatter. So this is our kind of core premise of the novel about how Jean is going to handle this pandemic, what it does to the park, how it affects the people there, and also how it affects the country and how people relate to animals around them and the inner experience of animals as it is portrayed in the book. So that is going to be the unique element of the book is that she, the author, McKay, she really takes a unique and interesting way of portraying the animal's thoughts and communication and has a really interesting way of thinking about how animals, their thought processes would be and the differences between humans and animals and how we interact with each other and the assumptions we make as well. So that is something that's kind of interrogated in this book. Insofar as the plot though, so we do have the zoo flu and while the park would be someplace that you could knuckle down and try and ride this out, spurred on by the irresponsible actions of her son Lee, so we won't get into spoilers, but let's just say Jean ends up having to hit the road in a camper van with Sue by her side, Sue the dingo, and Jean really ends up seeing and experiencing exactly what the pandemic means for her, what it means for how she interprets Sue the dingo and Sue's thoughts, and also the humans and animals in the country as experienced during the pandemic. So it is a pandemic story, but it's also a character story. It's a road trip story. And it does have some very interesting things to say about human and animal interaction. One thing I will note is that I think is so interesting, and we talked a bit about this when we reviewed Severance by Ling Ma on the show. So this book was written before COVID. So these ideas were already floating around in the author's mind and I found it really interesting when you view the novel like that. Oh, you know, what did she think it was going to be like? What did she get right? What did she get wrong in terms of what the response might be like to a pandemic and what that might look like? Do you know there's a theory that you can predict the next war by novels written about it beforehand? Ooh. Maybe we're running into the same sort of thing with pando fiction. (laughs) Well, it could, you know, it could be in that there's always something that kind of overtakes the collective imagination. There was a whole time when it was about something hitting the earth, right? Like everybody was really consumed by an asteroid is coming. And then it was climate change that one day climate change would like kick in and the world would be devastated overnight by this weather catastrophe. And I think now it is very much this viral fear. Pando punk. (laughs) 
<laughs> Absolutely. I think this is it. This is That's this it. is the latest and greatest. Cyberpunk, you're out. Pando punk, you're in. I think there's a little bit of a trend with some Australian authors and women writers as well, writing some really interesting and gritty novels that focus around a kind of dystopia or some of these darker ideas. So I'm thinking here, Charlotte Wood's The Natural Way of Things, Alice Robinson's The Glad Shout, and Claire G. Coleman's Terra Nullius as well. So these are all focusing on this imagined sense of what would happen if the unimaginable came to pass. So I thought that was quite interesting, actually. So for the animals in that country, the focus is the animal communications piece, but the backdrop of the pandemic is fleshed out enough to be interesting, but we're really honing in on the voice of the animals, what the animals are thinking and how that is portrayed in the book. And it's chaotic. It's strange. It's interesting to read. The portrayal of how animals think is certainly not in a linear, for lack of a better term, kind of way. Like it's not your Dr. Doolittle where we can have a human-like conversation with an animal. The author does point out that it is much more about a communication. So it's not just words in the mind. It's a body language. It's images and senses coming off an animal's body that we now understand. So I thought that was a very interesting angle, actually. Is it like the quickening in Highlander? You can feel what the animals are feeling. So, you know, if there's a stag running across the Highland hills, you can feel your blood pounding as you go racing along, that sort of thing. Yeah, actually a little bit like that. Like there's senses of fear and hunger and different things that I think the humans do pick up on enough of that for it to be quite an empathetic experience. Yeah, for sure. Is it unbearable if they think about humans and the horrible things that humans do to animals? I'm really glad that you brought that up, Rob, actually, because going in, I was thinking, is this going to be a novel that's really focused on the atrocities that humans do to animals? Because obviously that is a reality. And there's been many great novels that talk about these themes, but I was wondering, boy, am I just going to be reading a whole novel of animals having a horrible time because of the legitimately horrible things that we do? Now, it's a much more complex message than that. It's much more about what we assume to be the inner lives of animals rather than let's have a log list of all of the animals we mistreat and what their perspective on that would be. Because I would argue that's a fairly well-worn path. We have seen those examples before and she does touch on it. It's not ignored. There are animals that Jean comes across that are in a horrible situation and that's reflected and you do get that reality in your mind. But it's not the core focus of the book. A simpler path would have been if she had just gone down this mistreat animals angle where it's about animal rights and, you know, the atrocities of humans and so on. But it's not really about preaching a particular angle or anything like that. It's much more about exploring an idea. So I will warn, though, that there are a couple of passages that might be a little bit upsetting because obviously, you know, this is some heavy themes. And while the book is dark and weird. I will say there's a lot that's quite tongue in cheek. You know, obviously there's some elements that are touched on that are a bit more unpleasant. It's not like the road where you're just reading the the road and (laughs) feeling horrible about everything. It's lighthearted. And while it strays into darker territory here and there, it's not completely dire. 
So the novel The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay. Does this zoo flu kill you? No. So this is the thing. You're just kind of left with this communication ability. I would say there's a progression of the disease. The mammal thing happens first and you would think that the more animals you can hear, the more unbearable it is going to be. So you're going to struggle towards the end there. What I thought was interesting is the way it's generally portrayed in pop culture, that animals, they're portrayed like humans, basically, in human terms with human-like thoughts, and their experiences are portrayed in contrast to or relation to a human experience, whereas this was much more haphazard, and it doesn't take on that human-centric view. It's interesting to think, you know, sometimes I look at my dog and I am like, what are you thinking right now? But we always have this curiosity of wanting to talk to animals to find out what they think of us and how it relates to us. And that's such a human-centric thing, but maybe they don't think of us at all or we're quite inconsequential to them. You know, it's really trying to explore a more raw portrayal of what animal thinking or animal thoughts or animal experiences might be like. And rather than just assuming that all animals are sitting around thinking about what the humans are doing in the nearby vicinity. Well, I assure you that it's probably that way with cats. I imagine cats are like ancient Romans and <laughs> they're not really saying, I wonder what the servants are doing now. It's, it's more, why aren't they doing it quicker? Exactly. Exactly, Rob. Absolutely. Like, you know, the king isn't thinking about what cleric number five is doing down in the dungeon, is he? No. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's an interesting angle. <laughs> cleric number five in the dungeon. You are such a gaming geek. <laughs> I know. I've revealed myself there. But, but, you know, you take my point. You take my point. And... One thing as well to note is that the humans in the story, they're not that likable. Some of them are more fleshed out than others. Some of them are very stereotype. Sometimes the animals are the more intriguing characters for sure. And that's what I thought was really interesting in the book that we have this kind of rich tapestry of different characters and some of the less interesting ones are the humans. So obviously I'm not going to ruin the book. If you feel like you want to go and read it, I definitely encourage you to do so. But I will say there were some plot twists that didn't ring true and sometimes if it feels like a twist isn't coming from an authentic place, if it's implausible, it kind of doesn't sit right with me, but that's a very minor nitpick that I have. It's very vivid writing. So it's very much going to take you to a time and place that you might not have experienced firsthand necessarily, but will become very vivid in your mind because it's very descriptive. There are a lot of scenes that I can, you know, I can feel like I'm there. I'm in that dingy pub. I can feel the sticky floor beneath my feet. And I think that's quite an art. And I think that's really great that I could be taken into Jean's experiences like that, considering that Jean is a character that's pretty far from my own lived experience for sure. As mentioned before, I did read it in a couple of hours. So you'll know pretty quickly if it's going to be for you or not. But the writing style and just the pace of things did keep me very engaged. And Jean and Sue, so the dingo and the grandma, they do go on a journey and it is quite interesting. Don't expect there to be a very pandemic part of things is a secondary story. So it's not going to be a super fleshed out world building of the dystopia because that's not kind of what the book is trying to do at all intentional. But if you're going and expecting some deeply, 
you know, thought out world and et cetera, et cetera. You're going to get some touches of that and the touches that are there are really interesting and well done, but that's not the core premise. As I mentioned before, we're thinking about the experiences of Jean, the relationship of Jean and the animals around her, things like that. So the world building is in our focus and that's cool. So the first half and the setup is wonderful and that's the strongest part of the book for me. There was a chunk that reminded me strongly of the Severance, the book that I mentioned before. It's a really interesting slice of life. What would these characters in this situation be doing if this stuff went down? And I think that was really nicely thought out and quite vivid and a little bit claustrophobic. It did remind me a bit of our own experiences in lockdown and during the pandemic and so on and just surviving and trying to do what you can do. That was a really great segment of the book for me and it definitely made me think a bit about what continuing on with life as normal (laughs) as much as possible would look like in extraordinary circumstances. So that was lots of interesting thoughts that came out of, of reading this book for sure. The book is called the animals in that country. And it is by Laura Jean McKay. It is a generally a pandemic type novel. I would say it, it strays into the side of a science fiction, but it's very much a character fiction piece. It's intriguing. I think it would be great if you, if you did read it, if you had someone to talk about it with, because there's some ideas and things that are brought out that are worth thinking about. So I did enjoy the book. There's some elements of it that didn't grab me, but I did want to talk about it because I think it's a pretty interesting premise. So if you think it sounds like something yeah. for you, then check it out. You're really bringing some interesting books to the table while we've been going through the pandemic, Megan. I, I thank you for that. There have been some fascinating ones. That Severance one in particular I enjoyed. I have a couple of questions about this mm. one. Is it have a very strong sense of being set in Australia? Very much so. And that's not just because we start in the animal park and we're dealing with a lot of obviously native animals and so on. Jean is a very strong Australiana character. So she is rough around the edges. She's from an area of Australia where, you know, it's, it's going to look and be quite different to daily life in, in the city. That's described quite well. And then when we take to the road, the people we meet and the things we do, you do get a bit of a sense of it being the country. If you're unfamiliar with kind of more rural parts of Australia, you might be like, oh, this seems quite stereotypical. I was like, I don't know, I can imagine Jean being a real person for sure. But yes, there's a pretty strong sense of place in this. And that's also brought out in the fact that a lot of native animals are being talked about in the story too. So like wallabies and dingoes and things like that. So yeah. I suppose that the actual park is more uh, for Australian animals and exotics from outside. I think there's a bit of a combo, but there's definitely, uh, you know, a large showing of your your native animals there, yeah. Because if they had pandas, well, that would be like panda, park, pando, punk. Pandemic novel, totally, totally. (laughs) (laughs) And and obviously, yeah. Yeah, the Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay. So that one is published by Scribe. So I was wondering about what might be nice to play. We played our Wynette track and I thought, let's play a track that someone has written about their pet or about an animal. And so it's a little bit of a stretch, but I mean, we're talking about an animal companion focus here. So the one that I went to was a track called Sadie by Joanna Newsom. And so I thought that might be a nice little bridging track before we talk about our movie, Proxima, coming up. This is Sir Derek Jacobi. Zero G or not zero G, 
That is the question. The very recognisable tones of Joanna Newsom singing Sadie, which we played in homage to the book I just covered, The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay. Got a whole Bjork sort of feeling there and uh, yeah. maybe Buffy St. Marie was some some very captivating lyrics. I like yeah. that. I must hear more. <laughs> you'd like her. I think you'd like her, Rob. You should get into some Newsom. Actually, I feel like we've been playing in Twain County <laughs> today because we had Stand By Your Man earlier on. And that's kind of appropriate for looking at the movie Proxima, mm-hmm. which I caught up with on DVD, Madman Single Disc Edition, without many extras at all. In fact, none that I could see. This is also available on various streaming services too. Yeah, it's on Stan at the moment for sure. The subgenre of women in space is actually not too well populated, but some of the movies are choice. Hidden Figures, which is about women who got people to space. Contact. Classic. Need to rewatch that. Yes. Arrival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Gravity. Sandy B. We could go to Annihilation, but we're still trying to figure out what what was going on at all yeah oh no it all makes sense you know and very often women have been the subject of some of these movies jupiter ascending for example Mm -hmm. fifth element Mm -hmm. but those are all often set in a far and sometimes fanciful future Mm -hmm. more recently we have been more grounded, so to speak. There's a film called Lucy in the Sky, directed by Noah Hawley, loosely based upon the life of that NASA astronaut, Lisa Nowak. You know, the one who went a little strange and Mm -hmm. ended up crossing the country to stalk somebody. Yes, Uh, infamous. mm, Natalie Portman. Acting a heart out in that one, actually. I'm thinking more like we're in the, the realm of maybe gravity mm-hmm, for this mm-hmm. one than Lucy in the Sky. But actually, Proxima is in its own particular realm. Proxima mm-hmm. is the name of the mission mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's involved in the story. Now, it's directed by Alice Winokur, French screenwriter and director and she worked on the screenplay as well for this one. Look, I would be lying if I'd seen anything else that she's done, Mm -hmm. but I think actually The Ordinary People from Mm. 2009 might be something people are familiar with, and a bunch of shorts and so on. But this feels like her sort of fairly big-ticket movie, really. What is Proxima about? Well, it's an international space station mission. And in this case, the astronauts are going up to simulate a Mars mission. Yep. So they'll be up there in in zero gravity, in the environment of space. They're even going to shutter the windows Mm -hmm. so that they can't see Earth. Mm -hmm. So the idea is this is kind of like the penultimate road test, as it were, Mm. before a, a long duration actual Mars mission. The film stars Eva Green. No, Eva Green is, I love her. She's just such a presence and so unique. Or as I would like to think of her in terms of this film, EVA Green. (laughs) (laughs) 
we've seen in so many things and talked mm. about her roles in Zero G a lot. Vesper Lynn in Casino Royale back in 2006. Artemisia in the awful 300 movie and its sequel, Rise of an Empire. Sin City sequel, uh, A Dame to Kill For. Mm-hmm. And she's worked a lot with Tim Burton too. Dark Shadows, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Mm-hmm. Being a peculiar adult herself, Penny Dreadful. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where she plays Vanessa Ives with such passion and intensity that you fear for the actress's well-being and sanity. <laughs> and she was in the film we mentioned earlier, Perfect Sense, with Ewan McGregor, which is another sense pandemic kind of film which is sorely uh, underrated and not very well known but highly recommend that one whenever you see those dark eyes of hers Mm -hmm. Mm. you know that you're in for a soul dredging performance she's very striking and a very talented actress and she does that here She's playing an engineer. Her character name is Sarah. She's a French astronaut, one of the specialists aboard the International Space Station, but she has to get there first. It has been a long road. As they comment at one stage, not too many women have been through this facility mm-hmm. where she's being trained, and she has a dual role in this. She is a single mother with a little daughter called Stella. Mm. Very cute. Obviously a space hipster from way back. (laughs) As is her ex-husband, Thomas, Mm. who is a xenogeologist. He studies rocks. Mm. And this Mm. is actually, I think, one of the first indications this movie might be set a little bit in the future, not too far, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. he's studying Mars rocks, which means that one of the Mars sample return missions has probably brought them back. She's on pretty good terms with Thomas. She feels comfortable leaving her daughter with him for extended periods as she trains Mm. or, in this case, goes off on a long-duration space flight. Sarah, she may be comfortable with him, and that's actually a bit of a blessing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but she's not comfortable with having to do it in the first place. So there's a dichotomy there. She has to be astronaut and mother. Now, it's very, very rare to get a study of this duration in a movie about space. We're usually Mm -hmm. so wound up in the big ticket items. Mm -hmm. So this is more of a a very deep cut into what it must be like to be a mother Mm -hmm. and an astronaut. I cannot think of two things that would be possibly more high pressure all at once. (laughs) You know? Mm. You know, a lot of the male astronauts, they would have children and they would also, you would think, have equal parents. I mean, I understand she's also a single mother, but men also have parenting responsibilities. But I do think it is nice that we're examining here the nuances of her just trying to achieve this dream, but also she has a dual role as, you know, the most important person in someone's life. Exactly. And she really does encapsulate that particular part Mm. of the story, you know, she is encapsulated. <laughs> Space encapsulates it. <laughs> you know, there are other people in this story, of course. Matt Dillon plays um, Mission Commander Mike, mm-hmm. who is a bit sexist. Uh, I thought unlikely that he would be a little bit sexist in public. I don't know, though. I reckon a, that a, space a, cowboy vibe, the bro, yeah. I reckon he probably has been around that so much that he wouldn't see anything wrong with some of the things he's saying or 
view them as sexist whatsoever. Probably not a coincidence the director has made him an American astronaut either <laughs> because, of course, Eva Green is stretching out her language skills. She's using her French in this because she's a French woman. Well, it's hardly a stretch for her, is it? <laughs> no, <she did> beautiful <laughs> job. <laughs> Believe me, she's spoken in far more complex tongues <laughs> than French in her back catalogue of films and television shows. Well, we also have a psychologist, uh, Sandra Hala plays Wendy, and this is a mm-hmm. multinational uh, cast too. There's mm-hmm. a German, a, a Russian, uh, Alexei Fete playing cosmonaut Anton. So it's a three-man mm-hmm. crew going up, well, three-person crew in this case. Mm-hmm. They do shake down over the course of the movie. And mm-hmm. let me tell you that Mission Commander Mike gets a little less right stuffy as he goes along and, oh, good. and gains some appreciation good. for what his shipmate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm even if he does come across as a little patriarchal every now and then. In fact, a lot at some stages. Mm, he does come mm. good by the end of the film. I'm just letting oh, you know God. that. <laughs> so you're now, suffering through but with the promise of a character development arc. Yeah. Now, in light of Megan's book report and in order to forestall unnecessary dread and foreboding about animals, I will spoil this fact. The little girl, Stella, in this movie has a cat. Mm-hmm. Nothing bad happens to it. <laughs> beyond being relocated from one city to another, which is only bad from the cat's perspective. Yeah, yeah. Not from hypersensitive friends of foofy felines. (laughs) So just let you know that up front. I repeat, nothing bad happens to the cat. Zero G disclaimer here. Yeah, yeah. Because I felt at times I'm going, oh. (laughs) That aside, not a lot actually happens in this movie beyond the compass of Ava's role as mother and astronaut. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, if you were doing those two things at once, that's pretty much enough. Mm, mm, mm. You know, so we don't get to know too much about her beyond that. But again, I think that's actually enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now let's have a track here, which will be launch, not lunch. But launch. This is by Ryuki Sakamoto, which is from the original soundtrack album of Proxima. And it's just great that you can catch up with soundtrack albums so easy now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're all streaming somewhere. And that is the case with this one. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 R FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Launch. A haunting track from mm. Proxima. That particular track is our Bowie track for the week. Why, I hear you ask. Ryuchi Sakamoto played opposite David Bowie in Merry Christmas, Mr. Oh. Lawrence. And he... Also wrote the soundtrack for that film. A great musician, actually, and a pretty damn fine actor, too, one of those Renaissance men. A bit of a deep cut there, referencing David Bowie. Okay, Proxima. I think, you know, it's very much uh, an introspective piece about kind of Eva Green's journey and her preparation and mindset. Is there any portions in space, or is it very much about her mental and emotional preparation for that trip? And the answer to that is no. Mm, mm. It's what a rare space movie. It, it's mm. all about the training on Earth. Actually shot on location too. Cool. In- I like the idea of seeing some actual 
real life locations and preparation and things like that? Sarah, Ava Green's character is actually Eurospace astronaut, so ESA. And Mm -hmm. so we see the facility there and also Star City in Russia and the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which is where they actually launched the rockets from. That actually adds so much to the production values that you just think, yeah, this is the way it is. I've never actually seen one of those big Russian rockets hauled out of its hangar on its side. Wow. Unlike unlike the American rockets, which, you know, sit in their big vehicle assembly building upright, and it's just a mighty sight. (laughs) <laughs> to experience that. So all of that part of it is is great. The space training procedural, it's all there from measuring her head to put the Snoopy cap on, you know, the one, the communications mm-hmm. cap they wear under their helmets, to body casting her for the seat in the Soyuz capsule that will be Mm -hmm. used to take her up to the space station. She's obviously not going on one of the dragon American ones in this one. So all of that is is absolutely terrific and it's so high pressured Mm. and Ava handles that so well, switching from being absolutely gutted Mm. by a highly emotional meeting with her daughter to go into a press conference where they're taking pictures of her and she has to paste on the smile mm. and do the thumbs up. Mm. You know? yeah. That actually broke my heart at times during this film. The character of Stella, the little girl, mm-hmm. is played by Celie Boulant Lemicelli, and she is a wonder, just one of those people who – really capture the essence of what it must be to be a child in this situation. And there's Mm. so many subtle graduations of her character throughout the arc of this film. Mm. I actually would have liked to have seen a bit more from her perspective just because she's such a great actor at that age, you know. And a lot of this happens over either social media type things or over the telephone or, you know, that sort of thing. At one stage she's doing a video call to her mum and it drops out and we're just left with a frozen picture of her. You know, yeah, it does tug at the heartstrings. And we don't often get this Mm. in films. Usually it's a brief montage or something like that, but that is the point of this film. Mm. Yeah. Do they take it too far? Yeah, I think so, actually. You were talking earlier on about the book that you were reading Mm. where you get some improbable or implausible events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is one very large problem in this film, an event that uh, occurs, and you think, I can't see an astronaut doing that. Right, gotcha. Okay. And yet... Stranger things have happened. We were talking about uh, Mm. Lucy in the sky before. Mm. So who am I to say? And if the situation was reversed, I have to stop and ask myself, if it was a man Mm. who does what she does in this film, would it be even questioned? Mm. Would it be seen as a man taking agency? Mm. I reserved judgment on that, although I just felt that as space procedural it was a a little bit odd. 
Mm. But anyway, okay. and I'm not giving away what that would be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think this is a, an excellent film in itself. You may find it fairly slow moving mm-hmm. because it's like real life. Yeah, it's about the. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes real life just doesn't have that kind of. And, and this we're talking about an asteroid, so pretty much ups and downs are in the job description. Yeah. I will say of um, astronaut Mike to uh, restore my faith, he isn't a complete lunkhead. He does he doesn't understand how people can't believe in climate change, so he gets a big tick there from me. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some lovely moments in this film where they're setting up a storage house in their heads and their spirits, I guess, of mm. Earth experiences because mm. they'll be – away for so long, walking on grass in bare feet and, mm. you know, standing out in the rain. And wow. Not that green isn't <laughs> accustomed to suffering. <laughs> 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 and there are awkward moments in the film that play very realistically. And, you know, this is um, a mm. film that will speak to you if you've got any interest in the space program, and I mm-hmm. assume that many people listening to Zero G <laughs> would have that. I think it's something different. Do I mm. think they could have made a better film? Yes. Do I think they could have made a more touching film? Maybe not, actually. What's your overall Zero G rating? Yeah, nah, maybe. I feel this is so exotic that it transcends some of my usual thoughts about that. Great space procedural. The relationship between mother and daughter is centre stage, which is unusual. Mm-hmm. It's not going for the the big science fictional drama, although it is in a way science fiction because it is slightly mm-hmm. set in the future. We don't have a Mars flight actually ready to go yet. <laughs> so mm. I give it a, a yeah mm. rating. I'm – not hyper-enthusiastic about it, but it okay. is so unusual that I, I think it was worth someone having a shot at it, damn it. Okay. Nice. Hmm. So check it out. It's called Proxima. Mm-hmm. If you like a, a slower-paced continental mm-hmm. film about spaceflight. Mm. And it's available on Blu-ray, DVD, <coughs> and also streaming on Stan. Yeah. The DVD, I've got a single disc from Madman, Proxima. And there is some coarse language, not much, <laughs> uh, and some in-context nudity. Hmm. I don't quite see how they could have done the scenes that they did without actual nudity. Yeah, I think some of that lends itself. That makes sense to me. Yeah. All right, so that's about it for Zero G today. Mm-hmm. And we shall go out with a track called Sounds of Space. Now, this is actually from an album called Celestial Incantations. Mm-hmm. It's the second album by the Sounds of Space Project, which is a collaboration between three doctors with nothing Whovian in sight, Dr. Meredith, Scarborough, and Cuneo. And these are a spectrum of space sounds from the Earth and parts beyond. So they've included gravitational waves, ice cracking, comets oscillating by, 
pulsar radiation and two black holes colliding, not all cool. in this particular track, mm-hmm. but throughout the album. And you can download it for free, along with their first album, Aurora Musicalis. So it's called Celestial Incantations, Sounds of Space Project, and you can get that on Bandcamp. All right, and this particular track is actually called Sounds of Space. All right, that's it for Zero-G for today. We're Team Robert is blasting off again. <laughs> thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And thank you to Kayla Larson, our podcaster. And Joe Brunatic is coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.